Well, given that uh, I'm in the midst, as I am every first semester of the year, teaching through the New Testament, and this past week, we've been talking about the Gospel of Mark a little bit. I thought I would look to a passage from the Gospel of Mark that has nothing to do with nostalgia, by the way, so this is not on theme for Hayward Lectures. Just wanted to let you know that. But picture it. It's 1997, and I'm in a bus in downtown Vancouver. I was... Uh, after graduating from grade 12 in Winnipeg, I knew I wanted to study the scriptures more. And so I followed in the footsteps of some family members and I went to Mount Carmel Bible School in Edmonton. That was a very formative year in my life. But now we are on the final trip together as a class. And so we were put together into random groups of four students and one leader. And we were given two assignments. But before the assignments were given, they took our IDs away. They took our wallets away and they gave us $20 total. The first assignment was to find a place where we could buy fresh fruit and then buy an apple or two. And the second was to then meet someone, anyone, and find a place where we could all have a meal together with what remained of our $20. And so my group of five was dropped off onto East Hastings Street. If you don't know, East Hastings is called Canada's worst street. Homelessness, drug trading, People OD'd or recovering on the streets, trash littered. A couple of minutes into our wanderings to try and complete these assignments of ours, we were swiftly surrounded by a wall of young men. They circled us, circled up, and they asked us, what are you looking for? My quick thinking peer Katie said, we're looking for a place to buy fresh fruit. A quizzical look came on the young man's face as he was trying to discern what street drug fresh fruit was code for. <laughs> They then realized we were literally looking for fresh fruit, and then they disbanded. We then met a very nice man who joined us for a meal at a small diner. He walked with a cane and a permanent limp that was incurred from severe drug use in his younger days. And over lunch, he talked about how happy he was that his new apartment, uh, how much better it was than his previous apartment, because unlike his previous apartment, it had hardly any rats. In the words of uh, Dorothy from Wizard of Oz, I was not in Kansas anymore. I had gone to the other side. It's amazing how quickly our worlds can change and our experiences can change. In this Vancouver experience, I stepped out of my relatively safe Christian bubble. And as I stepped off of that bus, I was in a whole new world. And in that new world, as with any world, there's both beauty and brokenness. I'm about to read from Mark chapter 5. The story opens with the line, Jesus and his disciples came to the other side of the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When you and I read this today, we assume it's simply like crossing a bridge to the other side on a local river. But this is no simple statement of a small location change. In the first century, this relatively small area surrounding the Sea of Galilee was politically charged, held spiritual and political significance. Around that lake, worldviews collided. There were three territories around the Sea of Galilee. The northeastern portion was Galilee. We're familiar with that from the stories of the Gospels. The northwest was called Galanitis, ruled by someone different than Galilee. It was a more diverse popula uh, population with both Jewish settlements, but then large pagan cities like Caesarea Philippi. And then there was the southeastern section of the Sea of Galilee, known as the Decapolis, which means the Ten Cities, which we'll hear about in verse 20 at the end of that story. 
The area of the Decapolis was ruled by yet another leader, far more Roman in orientation in that area. In the Decapolis, we are firmly outside of Jewish territory, outside of the common landscape of biblical history, outside of lands which hold Jerusalem and the temple as its center. So with this complex mix of geography and worldview, let's read the entirety of the passage now. Mark 5, 1 to 20. Jesus and his disciples came to the other side of the lake, to the region of the Gerasenes. As soon as Jesus got on the boat, a man possessed by an evil spirit came out of the tombs. This man lived among the tombs, and no one was ever strong enough to restrain him, even with a chain. He'd been secured many times with leg irons and chains, but he broke the chains, smashed the leg irons. No one was tough enough to control him. Night and day in the tombs and the hills, he would howl and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from far away, he ran and knelt before him, shouting, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? Swear to God that you won't torture me. He said this because Jesus had already commanded him, unclean spirit, come out of the man. Jesus asked him, what's your name? He responded, legion is my name because we are many. They pleaded with Jesus not to send them out of that region. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the hillside. Send us into the pigs, they begged. Let us go into the pigs. Jesus gave them permission. So the unclean spirits left the man and went into the pigs. Then the herd of about 2,000 pigs rushed down the cliff and into the lake and drowned. Those who tended the pigs ran away and told the story in the city and in the countryside. People came to see what had happened. They came to Jesus and saw the man who used to be demon-possessed. They saw the very man who had been filled with many demons sitting there, fully dressed, completely sane, and they were filled with awe. Those who had actually seen what had happened to the demon-possessed man told the others about the pigs. Then they pleaded with Jesus to leave their region. While he was climbing into the boat, the one who had been demon-possessed pleaded with Jesus to let him go as one of his disciples, but Jesus wouldn't allow it. Go home to your own people, Jesus said, and tell them what the Lord has done for you and how he has shown you mercy. The man went away and began to proclaim in the ten cities, the Decapolis, all that Jesus had done for him, and everyone was amazed. Jesus in this story is pushing the boundaries of where faithful Jews normally went. Every step on the other side by Jesus' disciples was probably a step of fear or uncertainty, perhaps even revulsion. Can you relate to that? Have there been worlds you've entered and felt scared or uncertain? Perhaps your reaction was to leave, never come back. Perhaps your reaction was judgment, condemnation. How different our reactions are to the other side as compared to Jesus. He wasn't scared. He didn't hesitate. The disciples were beginning to learn that there's no place outside the bounds of the Spirit's work and God's loving embrace. But there's perceptions of all sorts in this story. We're witnessing a spiritual battle. And what's so interesting about this passage is that we're hearing directly from the spiritual world here as the demon speaks. This is the third time that this happens in the Gospel of Mark. Mark 1.24, a demon says, Leave us alone, Jesus of Nazareth. Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Mark 3.11, it states that the unclean spirits, whenever they saw him, Jesus, were falling down before him and crying, saying, You are the Son of God. We have a clear understanding in this story on the perception of the spiritual world. And what about the perception of the disciples and other followers of Jesus? They're silent here. But as I've said before, I think we can be pretty sure that the disciples are confused, perhaps frightened, 
perhaps their skin's crawling just being in this area. We know from other literature during this time of how demon-possessed people, especially of this magnitude, were perceived. They were considered man-men. They were shunned. The disciples would have approved of a placing a man such as this outside of their community and into caves. And so we, as we get to the end of the story, we see how those who lived in the area perceived things. Verse 15 tells us that they were afraid. And once they find out about the death of the pigs, they ask Jesus to leave the area. <clears throat> what was this power that they were seeing? This Jewish man from the other side. And so it's at this point that I want to point out a little bit of language here that bends us towards seeing the story in a certain way. There's some clear military and political language here. Indeed, it seems that Mark is telling us this story about an exorcism in such a way as to make a larger statement about Jesus and his lordship. I mentioned before that the demons speak and know who Jesus is in Mark, but this is the only time that Jesus will converse with a demon in Mark. He'll often just tell a demon, get out. But the name here is asked, and we hear legion. When I hear this word, I think of the places across Canada where veterans go to hang out and have a beer. But for first century readers, legion would have brought to mind Roman military units who patrolled these areas to keep them firmly under Roman occupation and control. A military legion always reminded the Jewish people that they were a conquered and occupied a colonized people, paying their taxes and tributes so the upper class could continue to live in luxury. To make it clear that he was drawing a connection between the military occupation, he describes the pigs as a herd. But if you've ever lived on a farm, you know that pigs don't travel in herds. And the Greek word here was a word used to describe a group of military recruits in other texts. And just in case you think there's still this is still a coincidence, Mark uses the Greek verb ormao to describe the herd of pigs rushing down the slope. This word is also used elsewhere in Greek texts to talk about troops rushing into battle, not animals moving around. One more background piece to add to all this, the Roman legion that was active in this area, the one that will later aid in seizing Jerusalem in AD 70, had as its emblem a boar's head, a pig. In short, what I'm trying to tell you is that if we were first century people reading this story, we would not only see the story of an exorcism and healing, but we would have recognized that there was military language being used and a political statement was being made. So what exactly is that political statement? Some scholars have said that this true story is at the same time being used almost like a political cartoon because what happens to the demons called legion, well, they drown. And if you were a first century Jewish person steeped in your scriptures, what would this remind you of? What's another story where the Lord comes to the aid of his people and drowns the enemy? Of course, Pharaoh and his armies at the Red Sea. Egypt, that great military might of that day, had subjugated God's people and they were liberated. Jesus now is doing the same thing. So Mark here in this story is putting oppressive forces in the world on notice that he is the Lord. The good news is for individuals, for oppressed peoples, for oppressed nations. No wonder these local people were frightened and asked Jesus to leave. This healing and exorcism had wider reverberating implications. Remember that we are in Gentile territory, the Decapolis region, where the Greco-Roman values are celebrated, where the emperor is seen as the savior of the peoples. Jesus' actions state the opposite. 
It's rather that the emperor and this oppressive Roman empire is wicked, empowered by the demonic realm, and most importantly, is a defeated enemy taken down by nail-scarred hands. And what of Jesus' perception now? The demons, the disciples, the crowds, the readers, we see this. But as we look at Jesus and his perception, we see him and how he sees this man. And that's the model we need to strive for as we seek Christ-likeness. We follow a God who goes to the other side. And he's calling us there as well. It's obvious, or it should be obvious, to us that Jesus was Jewish. An indigenous man who lived and breathed his scriptures, who lived and stepped with the rhythms of his land and his people, who partook in the ceremonies and rites of passage of his people, festivals and feasts centered upon Jerusalem. Like his countrymen, he followed the law, including the food laws, and he would have condemned Gentile idolatry and paganism because he knew that Yahweh was the one true creator God who alone is worthy of honor. And yet, while his Jewish brothers and sisters drew this hard line to separate God worshipers from idolaters, Jesus broke down these dividing walls. He didn't simply see idolatrous sinners that should be left to their own devices. He saw a land and a people oppressed by hostile forces. He saw people whom God loves. He saw people whom he would willingly die for. He saw people who needed liberation that only God in Christ could bring about. I hope this challenges you as it does me, because I oftentimes need a reformation of my eyes. I need the perception that Christ exhibits for us here. They saw an uncontrollable madman, but Jesus saw someone made in God's image. They saw a hopeless case. Jesus saw a man in bondage in need of liberation. They saw someone expelled from their community. Jesus saw an ambassador for God's inbreaking kingdom. What do you see when you look at people on the margins or on the outside of your comfort zone? We currently live in a time where we dehumanize others. We do this by labeling them. When we label them, we can dismiss them very easily. I know this is true because I succumb to it all the time. She's a Trump supporter. He's an anti-vaxxer. You're a socialist. They follow critical race theory. She's advocating the gay agenda. He's pro-choice. We identify and label and dismiss, identify, label, ignore, identify, label, dehumanize. It's exacerbated by social media and endless news cycle. It's unchristlike. When Jesus saw the man whose name we don't even know, he saw someone in need of the freedom that only Christ could provide. He saw past the labels the community had placed upon this man. And why didn't this man go with Jesus? Why, in fact, did Jesus say, I don't want you to go? Because this guy is ready to jump in the boat, to live a life in service to his liberator. And I love the zeal. It's that zeal that we so often see and celebrate in new believers in their lives. This was a natural and easy choice for this man to make, but that doesn't make it the right choice. This man had no doubt left a wake of devastation. This man who could break chains may have broken bones. Perhaps he had left a devastated family or brought harm to the whole community. But God's healing in our lives is holistic. It will affect every part of one's life. This man's healing will be complete only once he's restored to his family and his community as he brings the message about the one who healed him. 
as he begins the work of reconciliation in his circle of relationships. Jesus is not only the healer of the individual, but of peoples, of families, as he renovates communities. The Lord of all is the redeemer of all. We need to go forth like this man because we've all caused pain. We've all at times left a trail of hurt. But it's the telling of our stories that will spread the kingdom. Telling the story of how your life collided with the Son of God. How your life was enfolded into his. And let that reality do its work in you and in me to change your family, change your community. Let's close with a prayer. Lord Jesus, reform our eyes to perceive everyone around us in the way you see them. Loosen our lips to share our stories like the unnamed man in the story. We thank you for crossing to the other side for our sake. Help us to do likewise. Amen.